0: reading this morning will come from Genesis 15, verses 1 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know this that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each of half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a gold age, good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Y'all can be seated. Our preschoolers, you guys can make your way to your class. Hey, Zach, I'm going to use this until it dies, and I'm just going to leave this up here like this. All right. I'm going to invite the rest of y'all, those staying with us, to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. The way we're approaching Genesis right now, I am technically covering Genesis 15 all the way through chapter 17. If you were really looking forward to uh, Genesis 16 and 17, you may be a little disappointed. I basically have just a couple sentences in there about each of those chapters. Um, However, uh, I do do believe that this approach where we're focusing on Abraham and not every individual chapter will will help us have a better idea of the main ideas that are being communicated in these chapters. So Genesis 15, we're going to spend the majority of our time in that chapter. Now as we're walking through Genesis this summer, uh, I, f- I feel like we need to just be honest about something it's it's pretty obvious, but we need to we need to be honest we need to name it. It is very easy to feel the distance between the time of the patriarchs and our time. It's very easy to feel that distance and here's what I mean. Abraham lived like 2,000 ish years before Jesus was born. That's a long time. Um, We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus, so, like, essentially, we're 4,000 ish years removed from Abraham. 4,000 years. So, if whenever you were doing your Bible reading plan, you know, this year, and uh, hopefully in January, you were reading some of these passages in Genesis, you were just thinking to yourself, this is really weird. It should feel that way, because stuff that happened 4,000 years ago is probably going to be a little bit different than stuff that happens today, but we just need to, to own that. There's a lot of distance, and so here's here's where we got to be careful with that. It's easy to feel like the accounts that we read in Genesis don't matter that much to us, at least not practically. What you're going to be tempted to do is to read these passages, and the only benefit you're looking to derive from it is how it connects to what jesus came to do and we're going to do that and i think that's that's the primary you know motive of preaching is to exalt the risen christ we're going to do that but i don't want you to think by doing that there isn't any practical lesson to draw from the passage itself and, and here's why i say that with with confidence the author of hebrews saw a very practical purpose in our sermon text this morning, if you're fast in flipping your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 6 and look at verses 13 through 19. If you don't want to worry about that, I'm going to read it to you. In Hebrews 6, here's what we read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, all right, so that's the, the author of Hebrews is referencing our passage today, uh, Genesis 15 through 17. When God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So here's where it's practical. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. So based on that, based on God's promise that he gave to Abraham, based on the fact that he entered into a covenant with Abraham, he took an oath based on himself as he's giving this promise to Abraham. So, he says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then here we go. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The author of Hebrews saw a very practical lesson, word of hope, from Genesis 15 that is directly applied to Christians some 2,000 years later. And we can do the exact same thing this morning. The promise made to Abraham is an anchor for our souls because it highlights for us God's unchangeable faithfulness in the midst of our doubting hearts. Now, I told the... uh, Smiths, Robertsons, and McElwains, we were on the lake with them yesterday, I told them, you have to be careful inviting a preacher anywhere on a Saturday, because anything and everything can become a sermon illustration, all right, so that's just, I need to be honest with you, that's a warning to you, you know, maybe invite me over on a Friday, you know, you invite me on Saturday, you know, you're open. Now, I'll tell you. I'm not going to just spring an, a sermon illustration on you from the pulpit. I'll, I'll tell you, hey, I'm planning on doing this. Are you okay with that? Just know that that is a possibility. But if you've ever been on a boat on the lake, all right, and we were yesterday, my face shows it, um, you know the importance of anchors. Now, we're not like out in the middle of the sea or we're not fishing or anything like that. We're just, you know, hanging out Go into a little cove up against a bank, and we're we're hanging out there. But it's really important if you want to get out of the boat at all, and you want to swim around, you have to have an anchor. You have to the, the boat has to stay still. Otherwise, the boat's just going to float out, you know, where it's not supposed to be. It's just it's just the way that it works. It floats like that. So, uh, you know, that, I grew up, you know, going to the lake a lot. It, we we had dealt with that all the time. We had to make sure that the the boat was anchored well to the ground so that we could do whatever we wanted and not worry about the boat floating. Off. And, and, you know, obviously something about anchors, anchors themselves are kind of useless unless they have something that is strong to, to latch onto, right? It has to, you know, it has to be the, the ground or rocks or, or something. You can't just drop an anchor in the water and expect something to happen. But, you know, you have to have it or else the boat will drift and drift further and further away. The author of Hebrews says the promise that God made to Abraham, the display of his unchangeable faithfulness, produces hope, and is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. God's promises, we we know, are ultimately anchored to Jesus. We need an anchor of hope. We need an anchor of covenant faithfulness. Because we are prone, just like boats in the lake when they're not anchored, we are prone to drift away from the Lord in both what we believe, we're prone to drift in what we believe, and we're prone to drift in how we live. The winds and the waves of sin and the world, they, they can blow us all over the place. And so, just like a boat on the lake, without an anchor, we will find ourselves far from where we're meant to be. So here's a question for you. You're not going to want to answer this honestly. I'm not going to take a microphone around, but on your own, maybe write it down, cover your paper, Have you ever doubted God? Have you ever doubted him? No caveats. Have you ever doubted God? Doubt comes in many forms. Generally, there are three kinds of doubt, right? There's intellectual doubt. You know, there's something about God you don't understand. There's something you read in the Bible. Maybe this year in your Bible reading plan, you're like, Man, what do I do with that? That is re- That sounds really bad. That happened to me when I was sitting here. Avery, I promise I was listening very intently to your sermon. But just for a second, I was looking ahead in Genesis 12 just for just a moment. And when I was looking ahead, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that part where... Abraham, he takes his wife. They're going to Egypt to avoid a famine, and while they're there, he says, "I'm going to pretend that you're my sister." He does this multiple times, and and so Pharaoh takes his wife, and he like sells his wife out, essentially. And it's like, what in the world do we do with that? Or you know, there are all kinds of passages where it's like, you know, what do you do? The Lord, he he seems to be condoning this this murder and violence and all these different things. Like, and so you you have this this maybe maybe an intellectual doubt. You're like, I don't understand what's going on here. Maybe there's some theological truth that you just can't reconcile. You're talking to someone who has a different view of God than you, and you're like, I don't understand the Trinity well enough to be in this conversation. But the Trinity is so mysterious. Like, is this even right? Is this even true? You have something you can't reconcile. Maybe there's another worldview that that comes in and and it challenges you. You could be in a friend group, and everybody else around you believes differently from you, and they're just coming at you with different views and and. You, so you may have intellectual doubts. You doubt God's truth. There's spiritual doubt. So there's intellectual doubt, but then there's spiritual doubt. Maybe you haven't felt God's presence in a really long time. You feel spiritually dry. You feel really far from God. And you, maybe you've prayed for something for years, and God still hasn't provided it. So you doubt God's presence. You doubt his faithfulness. Well, and then there's circumstantial doubt, and this one's, this one's really common. Something happens to you that shakes your faith in God a little bit, something you obviously didn't expect. It's usually in the form of a tragedy, just something that's really disappointing, you know, or, or maybe there are some things that you know are true about God, things you know he wants for your life, but things are not going as you thought they would. And so these desires are left unfulfilled. And your circumstances cause you to doubt. You doubt God's goodness. You doubt his faithfulness to you. That happens to us. This is common. And we need an anchor of hope because these doubts are realities we will experience in tandem with our faith. It'd be one thing if it was like, if I'm doubting, I know that I don't believe. And then you just, you know, do what it takes to believe again. That's not how doubt works. Doubt works in tandem with belief and faith. There's an oscillation that that happens. We need to see that despite that oscillation between faith and doubt, between faithfulness and sin, God is relentlessly faithful to us. That's what we see in Genesis 15 through 17. We learn that even Abraham needed such an anchor of hope. And we see how God's unchangeable character shines through covenant promises. Throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, God, we are going to see, has chosen to set his blessing on one family so that the whole world through them would be blessed. And we're going to see time and time again that this family seems to be hopelessly unworthy. And at the same time, their God is relentlessly faithful. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to show you one truth about Abraham. And by the way, it says Abram throughout this passage, but in chapter 17, he is renamed to Abraham. So we're just going to go ahead and start calling him Abraham. When I read the passages, if it says Abram, same guy, okay? Abram, Abraham, same person. But I'm going to call him Abraham um, this this week since in, in our text his name is changing. One truth about Abraham and one truth about God. And I'm praying, or even right now, that this gives you an anchor of hope in whatever you may be facing today. So first, something about Abraham. First, I want you to see Abraham's doubting faith. Abraham's doubting faith. And second, I want you to see God's faithful covenant. Okay, Abraham's doubting faith. So... Sometime, we're not exactly sure how long, but sometime after God called and blessed Abraham, we read about it in chapter 12. He appeared to Abraham again in a vision, and he assured him of both protection and blessing. Here's how it it goes in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. All right, so uh, God is once again promising. He's saying... Listen, Abraham, I am with you. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. It's almost like he's reconfirming the the call and the blessing from chapter 12. And he's like, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm with you. And Abraham immediately doubts the Lord. He says, well, it says first, but Abraham, but Abram said, oh, Lord God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And when you think about Abraham, we typically think of him as a man of faith. And he was. But Abraham was also a man of doubt. Last week, Avery, as he's covered the, the call and blessing of God upon Abraham, this this week. What we're not covering are chapters 13 and 14. And, and while we saw that although Abraham wasn't looking for God, God found him, and he called him and told him to go to a land that he will show him, which, by the way, is not very specific. Abraham, leave your home. Okay, where do I go? I'll tell you later, you know. And Abraham demonstrates this wonderful faith in just responding and going wherever the Lord is going to call him. Um, He has this promise that's given to him that says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham starts to think, in order to be a great nation, you kind of need at least two things, children and land. Abraham had neither since he left his land. So he leaves his land, he leaves his family, he has no descendants, he has no children, and he has no land. So between chapters 12 and 15, and 13 and 14, Abraham is basically, at the request of the Lord, he is sent out on a tour of the promised land. God sends Abraham, we read, to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, and he promises him, specifically in chapter 13, that he will make his offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if... You can count the dust, then you can count the children of Abraham. The promises, they begin rolling in, and they're going to keep coming in the next few chapters. You don't have a son, Abraham, the Lord says, but I'm going to give you one. You don't have land, Abraham, but I'm going to give it to you. Um, that's all Abraham's told this would kind of be like Tim or Corey just, just, you know, taking me through someone's house, taking me through someone's house. And they're all there in the house and they're, they're cooking dinner and they're watching TV and they're just walking me around the house. And they're like, very soon, all of this will be yours. And I'm like, is the house for sale? Don't worry about it. You know, just, just trust me one day this house will be yours. That's Abraham. He's touring this land and he's like. Oh, this is mine because there's people living there, and there's people living there, and there's people living there. Oh, okay, this land is mine. I mean, what, what is he supposed to, to do with this? This tour of the land and, and this powerful vision of a multitude of people who will come from him has a dual effect on Abraham. He oscillates between doubt and faith, and this pattern shines clearly in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 15. So look at verses 2 through 3. In verses two through three, as Brandon read, Abraham starts to doubt, and the doubt that he's felt probably since his call is now finally expressed. In response to God's promise of blessing and protection and reward, Abraham says, "What are you going to give to me? How can you give anything to me? I, I remain childless. I, my, my, you know, uh, relative Eliezer, he's the one who's going to inherit everything." And the Lord, then, or, or sorry, um, he, he's he's basically saying. God, I believe you, but how can it be that you're going to bless and reward me when I don't have any of the things that you say I'm going to have? I don't have it. What could you possibly give to me? Abraham's doubting the how this is going to happen. In verses 4 through 5, God responds. And he responds by making a promise. So Abraham doubts. Pick up the pattern. Abraham doubts. God makes a promise. In his goodness, in his grace, he restates his seemingly impossible promise to Abraham he assures him he says Abraham I know you can't see it right now but Eleazar will not be your heir because you're gonna have a son and your son is the one who is going to inherit everything from you you will have a son and so then the Lord he takes him outside and says I want to give you a, a, a greater picture of this and he shows him the the stars in the sky and he promises him that his offspring will be just as uncountable so it's like if the if the sand if the dust if that didn't do it for you then here are the stars look at the stars you're not gonna be able to count your descendants i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make it happen in response to that abraham believes now he has believed before this isn't the first time abraham is believed if he didn't believe god if he didn't trust god he wouldn't even be here right now he is he's already been trusting the lord But we read in verse 6 that Abraham believed God, and God counted or credited his faith as righteousness. This means that in this moment, Abraham was justified by faith. He's made right with God, not on the basis of his obedience, but on the basis of his faith in God's grace. And so the model of salvation is now set God did not consider Abraham righteous because he obeyed the call to leave his home and follow him. Instead, Abraham's belief in God's grace, in God's power, in God's work to bless him and through him all nations is credited, credited to him as righteousness. Paul says this in Romans 4. Study Romans 4 later if you want to really deep dive into this passage. There's a lot of stuff in the New Testament about this passage alone. In Romans 4, Paul says, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, we just read Genesis 15. No word of circumcision. Circumcision comes in Genesis 17. See, I covered Genesis 17 right there. Okay, here we go. Um, it It was not after... But before he was circumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through obedience to the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he goes on to say, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is just emphasizing really clearly that Abraham's faith is not something that the, the Lord was like, you got you to gotta, you know, uh, uh, you know, muster up the, the mental and the emotional and the spiritual strength to believe in me enough. Abraham is just, rece- he's just trusting God. He's like, I have no idea. You see how his faith is, how weak it is, how weak it seems? I have no idea how this is going to happen. None of this makes sense to me. You're saying I'm going to be, you know, great, and there's going to be a great nation after me. I don't even have one kid. But I believe you. That's what saving faith looks like, just a simple trust in the Lord, that he can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Okay, so then in verse 7, so what do we have? Abraham is, or God has made a promise. Abraham's doubted. God has made a promise. Abraham believed. So now he's on the right track, right? Okay. In verse 7, God makes another promise, this time for land. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then in verse 8, surprisingly, immediately after believing, Abraham doubts again. Abraham's like, oh, yeah, um, speaking of this land that you keep promising— How exactly am I going to possess a land that belongs to other people? Notice something about Abraham here. He's not doubting that God can do it. He knows God God can do it. He just cannot imagine how it can happen. He still struggles just to take God at his word. Even as he believes, he doubts. So Abraham says, I believe you, Lord, that you're going to give me land. But how can I know? How can I be certain? Because I just don't see a way forward here. What assurances can you give? Again, we don't think of Abraham as a man of doubt, but a man of faith. But for at least a 25-year stretch of Abraham's life, he was full of both, faith and doubt. And that's because when the Lord made a promise to Abraham, he did not fulfill this promise immediately. He promises land for Abraham, but you have to understand, Abraham is never going to dwell in the land that he's touring. He's going to be buried there. He'll be buried in this land, but he doesn't get to live in this land. It's not going to belong to his descendants until many years in the future. God promises children for Abraham, an heir that will be his own son. But 25 more years pass before Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And for all those years, Abraham is asked to believe that God will do something for him that he could never do for himself. So, of course, Abraham is full of, yes, faith, but also doubts. Do you ever find yourself like Abraham? On a seesaw of of faith and doubt, Do do you ever doubt what you believe to be true? That God loves you. That God cares for you. That God has saved you. That you possess power to overcome sin. That God is working for your good. That God will bless you and your family. That eternal blessing awaits you. Now maybe you feel guilty even admitting that sometimes you doubt God. And if so, you need to see three truths about doubt from Abraham's story. First, doubt is normal. Doubt is a normal experience for those who trust God. It's something that every Christian experiences in one way or another this side of heaven. It's something that Jesus does not rebuke. Do you remember Mark 9? In Mark chapter 9, there's a man who who brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus for healing. And he's, he's at his wit's end. He has no clue what to do. He's so desperate. And he hears that Jesus is casting out demons. He hears that Jesus is someone who can heal his son. So he brings him to Jesus. And the man looks at Jesus and he says, Look, I mean, I could just hear myself saying this. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, I hate to ask. Um, if you're able, if you can do anything at all, Please have compassion on us and help us. Here's what Jesus said in, in response All things are possible for one who believes. So he's like, If you believe, you have to believe in me. You believe in me? No, or, you know, then, then this can happen. And the Father cries out with utter honesty and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that was enough. Jesus didn't say, Well, go work on that a little bit and come back and then I may heal your son you know that faith needs to be a little bit stronger because it sounds like you have a little bit of doubt in there he says I believe help my unbelief the son is healed on the basis of this father's doubting imperfect faith in Jesus doubt is a normal experience because we do not have infinite knowledge or infinite wisdom into how God works in our lives but second Doubt actually requires a measure of faith. I don't know if you've ever thought about doubt this way. Doubt requires faith. In a sense, you have to believe enough to doubt. It's only after Abraham has believed the Lord and followed him to this place that he begins to express his concerns or his doubts or his questions. If you don't have any faith at all, if, if you don't believe, you're not going to care enough to doubt. Doubt is different from unbelief. Abraham is is a lot like that man who came to Jesus saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And, And I want you to notice how Paul describes Abraham's faith in Romans 4 again. Here's how he describes his faith. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when I originally read that, I was like, that's problematic for me. Fully convinced, and then you read the narrative of Abraham, and you're like, does this sound like a man who was fully convinced, who had all these questions, and he's, he's not just immediately saying, okay, got you, Lord, thank you. I'm so excited. And does, does Abraham, in chapter 16, where he agrees with his wife's plan to have a child with Hagar to manipulate the promise of God? Does that sound like a man who's not wavering at all? Does it sound like a man who is fully convinced? Yes. This is a strange thing about doubt. A person who has been made right with God, a person who has been justified, can still doubt. It was doubt, not unbelief that led Abraham to do what he did in in Genesis 16. Doubting doubting is not wavering in unbelief. When we have doubts, they are not in whether or not God is able to keep his promises to us or to bless us or to work for our good. We doubt like Abraham did in verse 8 where he says, How can I know? How can we know? How, Lord? How can you possibly turn this situation for good? How could you ever use me for your glory? How could you ever bless our church? How, how can we know that salvation is sure? How, how can I know that I belong to you, that I have eternal life? We doubt like this because we believe that God is both able and willing to do these things for us. So doubt actually requires a measure of faith. And one more thing about doubt, doubt is also dangerous because doubt can lead to disobedience. Because we have to be honest about what can happen through doubt. Abraham's doubting faith will lead him to where our doubts can lead us toward unwise choices and sinful actions. And that's what we see in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah, they concoct this plan to give Abraham a son through their servant Hagar because they're tired of waiting. And they're, and they're doubting the Lord. They're like, we believe that you are going to have offspring. We believe that you are going to be a great nation, but he's not given us any information. He's not told us how that's going to happen, and I'm not sure this is even really possible. So let's make it happen, And, and they try to make it happen through Hagar, which the Lord rejects. They took God's promise into their own hands. They tried to bring God's promise to pass on their own, and how often do we do that when we doubt the Lord? We doubt him. We're tired of waiting. And and what we should be doing. And so we we try to use our own wisdom. We try to use our own power to, to, to make things happen in our lives because our doubt is leading us there. He doubts God's timing. He doubts God's ways. But doubting God, questioning God, wondering about God does not automatically imply unbelief. It requires belief. Now, Knowing that we're going to struggle with doubt throughout our lives in Christ, what kind of faith do we need? So if that's how doubt works, how does faith work? What kind of faith do we need knowing that even as we believe there are going to be doubts that continue to creep in throughout our lives in Christ? Well, two things. We first need a faith that rests in God's grace. That's where it has to rest. Our faith has to rest in the grace and goodness of the Lord, not in our own abilities. Abraham's only hope, I hope you see this so clearly, his only hope for children, I think the drama just plays that out. His only hope at such an old age, and Sarah at her old age, and his only hope for land that belongs to others is for God to make it happen. In verses 13 through 15 of Genesis 15, God is responding to Abraham's doubt once again, this time with a really strange word. Here's what he says. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay. And then he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. Okay. Abraham is asked, how can I know that I will possess the land? And God responds and says, oh, you won't actually possess it. That'll come much later. (laughs) What kind of assurance is that? You know? Abraham must have been thinking and wondering, what's up with that? So I'm, okay, that's not how I thought this was going to go. I thought you were going to say something like, watch this, I'm just going to wipe them all out. And then you can build from here. No. God is reminding Abraham that his blessing depends on his grace. Not Abraham's obedience or works. God is saying, Abraham... Your assurance that you will possess the land is rooted in the power of my hand and grace. You are not worthy enough, you are not good enough, you are not strong enough, you are not wise enough to become a great nation. But by the work of my hand, my promises will come true. You will be the father of many nations. That's why he ends up being renamed from Abram to Abraham, which is what Abraham means. Your descendants will live in the land that I will give to them. And not even, isn't this beautiful? It's confusing when you first read it. But isn't it beautiful? Not even 400 years of oppression and slavery can stop my promises from coming true. He's he's telling Abraham this now. Oh, yeah, it's not going to go like you think. Your people are going to possess this land much later. And by the way, they're going to have 400 years. You think 25 years is a long time to wait for a kid? 400 years before they're going to be out because they're going to be slaves and they're going to be oppressed but i will bring judgment down on those who oppress them because i will not forget the promise that i'm making to you right now that's the assurance god is offering himself abraham's possession of the land and the nation of people that will fill it depend on god's grace alone so we need a faith that rests not in our own abilities to understand god's word not not in the strength of our faith we Our faith needs to rest in God's grace. We also need a faith that patiently waits. Because Abraham, even though he doubts, even as he's doubting, he's patiently waiting. Because as he doubts, he believes. Abraham waited 25 years before seeing the fulfillment of God's promise to him. Faith in God is not dependent on specific life circumstances. We have to wait for God's promises to us to be fulfilled. We have to plod along in ordinary acts of trust and obedience as we wait for God to work out his purposes in our lives. And even then, it may not go as we thought it would go. But we have to patiently wait on the Lord to continue to work in us. Now, our faith is not going to be perfect. We will doubt, we will question, we will wonder. And that's why even more important than our faith in God is God's grace to us. Abraham's blessing, the blessing of all nations through him, did not depend on the strength of his faith, but on the strength of the object of his faith. And that's where we see that while Abraham is is a man of doubting faith, God is relentlessly faithful. And we see his faithful covenant coming in as the assurance of all assurances to Abraham. Now remember, Abraham waited more than 25 years from his initial calling to the birth of his son, Isaac. Um, God, God made a promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old. He didn't fulfill that promise until he was 100 years old. Do the math. If God made a promise to you today, if he made a promise to you today, and he didn't fulfill it until 25 years later, how old would you be? Now everybody say it out loud. We need to hear. Um, no, but, but how old would you be? That, that's a long time. Now, I would bet over over the course of those 25 years, you would want assurance from God. Is this going to happen? I know you promised me, but is it really going to happen? Abraham needs assurance. You see, since we know doubts will be part of our lives this side of heaven, we need to anchor our souls to something. What will anchor us? What will keep us steady? throughout the course of our lives as we struggle with doubt. We don't just need to know that God is powerful. Abraham knew that, that he can do anything. We don't just need to know that God makes wonderful promises. He says great things await us. Abraham knew that. He's still asking for more. We need to know that this all-powerful God who makes wonderful promises is faithful to keep them. We need a covenant-keeping God. So look with me the rest of this passage remember Abraham he says oh Lord God how am I to know that I shall possess this land that you're promising to me and God answers in a very strange way look what he says verse 8 how am I to know that I shall possess it verse 9 bring me a heifer (laughs) that's strange right how am I to know that I'm going to possess that land? Bring me a heifer. What? Bring me a female goat. Bring me a ram. Bring me a turtle dove and bring me a young pigeon. And if that's not weird enough for you, the next thing that happens is Abraham gets those animals and except for the birds, he slices all of them in two. And he lays the two pieces of the animals on top of one another. And then he waits. He waits. This is the assurance, okay? What do slaughtered animals have to do with assurance that God will keep his promise? God is making a covenant with Abraham. Here's what he's about to do He's about to say, You can know that you will possess the land that I've promised to you because I am the one who has promised it. I am trustworthy and I'm faithful. You can know that you will have this land, and you can know that everything I've told you will happen because I will keep my promise. So God makes a covenant with Abraham in the words of Hebrews 6 to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now, what is a covenant, first of all? A covenant is a legally binding commitment, usually between two parties, which contains conditions, promises, and signs that accompany them, so covenants basically have these four parts: parties, promises, conditions, and signs. In Abraham's covenant, the covenant God makes with him, we see the parties, the two the people involved, God and Abraham. And that's it. All right. So the parties, God and Abraham. The promise, God promises to give Abraham a son and land. We we know this because in chapter seventeen, uh, he expounds on on the covenant there. Son and land. The conditions. What's, what's going to be true, or, or what's going to need to happen in order for this to, to be true? It's, the conditions are unconditional, meaning that nothing is required of Abraham to fulfill the promise. This is a unilateral, unconditional covenant, and he tries and fails to, to mess this up in Genesis 16. The sign of this covenant, we see it in Genesis 17, is circumcision. Now, this covenant is a beautiful covenant. And powerful display of God's faithfulness, which I know if we can just spend some time in it, will serve as a deep anchor for our soul. So the clue is in how this covenant is ratified. In the same way, marriage, marriages have covenants. There's a marriage covenant that we, we talk about a lot in premarital counseling. We'll talk about a lot in weddings. Um, in the same way that a marriage covenant is legally ratified through a ceremony and the proper signing of a marriage license, God's covenant with Abraham is legally ratified through a ritual involving slaughtered animals and a flaming torch. In fact, the ritual in this passage. It actually sort of functions like a wedding. So, read, dude. Like, maybe we could pull some ideas, you know, from from this passage, you know, for the wedding next month. I, I don't know. I do know that you guys are going to be thrilled that after the the wedding's over, I will only be asking for the marriage license to sign and not for a heifer. You know, they like, hey, you you bring that bring that heifer in here, and you know, have you see me with a knife and a, and a lighter? No, we're not we're not we're not going to be doing anything like that. But it sort of does function as a wedding. Um, this is where the assurance comes in. God passes between the pieces of the sliced animals. Look at verse 17. So he's already sliced the animals up and all that. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your offspring I give this land. God makes this fiery appearance as a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The the, the theological word for this is, this is a theophany. It's, It's a visual manifestation of God himself. God has appeared here and in other places in the Bible, as as fire, and it symbolizes God's unapproachable holiness. So follow with me what's happening here. This flaming torch starts gliding, walking down the aisle between these, these, these pieces of these animals that have been split in two. And what's interesting and important here is that Abraham is not asked to join in the ritual. He is completely passive. He is not asked to pass with God between the pieces. He's completely passive. He's simply receiving, not acting at all. This was an act of God alone, a commitment that God is making alone. This is an unconditional unilateral covenant god was symbolizing by by passing between the pieces of the animals that had been killed he's symbolizing here that if he were to break his word if he were to break his promise he would be slaughtered just like these animals it's it's an acted out curse guaranteeing that Abraham's descendants would get the land and that there would be descendants or God would die. That's the picture. That's the picture of this covenant. What assurance do you need? If I don't do it, I will die. And God cannot die. So through this ritual, God is showing Abraham that he is trustworthy. Abraham can believe the promise. He can be confident it will be fulfilled even when it makes no sense to him because God has committed himself to its fulfillment. So, again, like I said at the beginning, 4,000 years have passed since that that wondrous, wild event. What does it mean for us? As I was reading this week, Ian Dugweed, who's a a Bible commentator, he, he said it so much better than I ever could. Here's what he said. By what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abraham? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure to become a reality. For the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abraham. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus so that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people. That's so powerful. What more could God do than this theophany, this appearance? Could there be a greater condescension than his self-curse should he break his promise? Only one thing. He could become incarnate. He could dwell among us. He could become a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. As the Apostle Paul once wrote, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. By God's very word and his fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, we are now part of Abraham's offspring, his people. And there is an ultimate land that is awaiting us, the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, while we wait for that day patiently with the faith of Abraham, even as we doubt, even though we're going to be plagued with doubt as Abraham was, we must wait like Abraham. We must rest in the sovereign grace of God like Abraham. We must trust that God will do what he says he will do, and we must live like eternal blessing is awaiting us. And we can do all of that because God is unwaveringly faithful to his covenant with us. He is unchangeably with you and for you. This is the anchor of hope that your soul needs in this wild and weary world that we live in. We can trust God just like Abraham when we don't understand what he may or may not be doing in our lives. We can trust him when we feel like he has forgotten us. We can trust him when our doubts tempt us to live our lives in our own power and wisdom. We can trust him. How can you know? Because he is faithful.